But we're going to be in Acts chapter 14, and we're actually going to read the entire chapter this morning. So find in your Bibles Acts chapter 14, moving forward in the book. Chapter 14, according to chapters, is about halfway through, so we've, we've made some progress. So let's read chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the church, against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe, and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up to your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, now realize the, they were speaking in Lyconian, so Paul and Barnabas didn't know what was being said. Now they're catching on, verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, this would be their followers, okay, had gathered around them, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, 
And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So we have a narrative here. This is a, a fairly long narrative. It's short in compared to the story it tells, but this is the narrative of Barnabas and Paul heading out on Paul's first missionary journey. And we have the full account of where they went, what they did, and a few things that happened. What I want to do is I want to pull from the narrative an example of a disciple and then apply that example of a disciple to us. Okay, so the title is Macro to Micro Discipleship. And I've defined macro discipleship as discipleship on the big stage, bigger than life. Now, you might look up here and say, well, you're the one on the stage talking, so you must be involved in macro discipleship because it's, it's bigger than what we're doing. And in some ways, that's true, okay? But I can look to a further uh, person. I can look to someone with a radio ministry or, or with a, a conference speaker, someone who has a larger audience or someone who has greater understanding, and I would look at them as macro and, and me as micro. So these, these terms are sort of relative, okay? Uh, a member of the church might look at their small group leader and say, well, you're my, my, you're my main discipler. And a small group leader might look to a Sunday school teacher and say, no, they're, they're more of a discipler than I am. And, and, and those people might look to their pastor, and the pastor might look to an evangelist or something like that. So the terms are relative. I pretty much made them up. I want you to know that. Okay? So don't, don't, don't get too uptight with the terms. Just follow the concept. Paul and Barnabas are the featured disciplers on the macro stage of Acts 14. They, they are going out in a big way to a huge audience covering geographical territory. Therefore, this is a big stage discipleship program they're involved in. And I, I want to identify their discipleship, the marks of their discipleship. And then I want to bring that right back down to you and I who, who live in Kathlamet, Washington and attend Heritage Bible Church. So let's look at that macro discipleship. And I'm going to refer back a lot to what we read only a few times will I actually take you to a passage because you, it should be in your memory. It wasn't that hard to comprehend. So number one, as disciplers, they used their spiritual gifts. Okay, they used their spiritual gifts and spiritual growths, G-R-O-T-H-S, to minister to and serve others. Since I made up the first two words, I figured I could make up a third word and you'd let me get away with that. The concept here is that over time, we develop spiritually, and we're going to develop uh, things that may look like spiritual gifts, may look like talents that God gave us, but are actually things that we've learned along the way through discipleship. So we have gifts, and we have growths. I will grow into various ministries, grow into various ways of serving as I use my gift. So just some examples, uh, several in your notes there. In verse 1, 3, 21, and 25, we see the gift of evangelism. It says they, they went to the synagogue as was their practice, and they shared the gospel. They spoke boldly about Jesus. Okay, these, 
These scriptures all mention speaking. They're all about the gospel. They all reflect people hearing and being saved. And, and, and I'm guessing this was probably the gift that Paul received in, in, in the beginning. But there's other things we see. In verse 3, we see signs and wonders. We might call these miracles. We don't look for signs and wonders today. We don't look for miracles today in the sense of a person who does miracles. Because the gift of miracles was an apostolic gift given to apostles so they could validate the message they had. We don't need that validation because we have the validation of Scripture. We have Scripture to read. They had not written Scripture yet. So we don't need that, therefore we don't have it. It may come back one day. God may say, now it's appropriate, we're going to do this again. We actually read about miracles in Revelation, so it will come back. But we're in a time right now, we don't look for signs and wonders. We also don't look for healings. Now we pray for people to be healed, obviously. But we don't stand before them, hold out our hand, and declare them healed. That is also an apostolic gift. But Paul and Barnabas had these gifts. At least Paul did. We see Paul doing these things. So he's exercising the gift of evangelism, signs and wonders, healing. In verse 22, it says he strengthened the disciples, encouraging them. Well, we would call that preaching and teaching. The, the gift of, of taking God's word, explaining it to people, showing it how it applies to their life. That's a, that's a spiritual gift. And in verse 23, they appointed elders, which would be the gift of administration. Now, I, I don't want you to think that Paul, at his conversion, was given seven different gifts. I think at, at Saul's conversion, he was given a gift. I think at his sending, he was given other gifts. When he was sent out as an apostle, I think he received the apostolic gifts. And, and that would have been super early on, so it would have been very close to his conversion. But I think he learned how to teach and preach, and I think he learned how to be an administrator. So H in your notes, spiritual gifts are the beginning of our ministry, not our goal. A lot of times we have this goal of, I need to figure out what my spiritual gift is, then I can do my spiritual gift, then I'm doing everything God wants me to do. Not true. Never true. It's never been true. Your spiritual gift is your starting place, so that you can serve, and you do have a place, and you do have something to do, and no matter what ministry you're a part of, your spiritual gift will play into it. There is no gift that does not affect a ministry. So every gift you have, every thing God gave you at your salvation, you can use in service, but that's the starting place. Okay? In Acts 9.15, let me read that to you real quick. Acts 9.15, this is right after Paul's conversion while he's still at, uh, at the house. He hasn't, he hasn't even been healed yet. It says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. That's Paul's spiritual gift of evangelism. He was given the ability to proclaim the good news of Christ literally in any circumstance at any time before any group of people. He had no problem uh, transitioning a conversation to Christ. He had no problem when he was being attacked, turning it to Christ. When people were in awe, turning it to Christ. That, that's, the, that's the gift he had. Okay, H, spiritual growth, spiritual growths produce the effects of many gifts within a single minister. We go back to the beginning 
where we are introduced to um, Paul, we go to Acts 13.1, and we talked about this, how there's five guys that were developed, and we know that from Galatians 1 that this development was an 11-year process. Paul was the first one that Barnabas brought in, so Paul had been discipled and mentored by Barnabas for 11 years before they left on this missionary journey, before they went on their first trip. So for 11 years, Barnabas taught Paul how to preach and teach, how to ad ad administer, do administration, and, and many other things. He learned how to lead people. So spiritual growth produced the effects. We see, we, 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 if we just read this, we'd say, wow, the gift of administration, wow, the gift of preaching, the gift of teaching. But probably not the gift, probably the growth. So discover your gift and then look for your growth. Your growth will allow you to be a better servant, a better teacher, a, a better helper. And whatever ministry you're in, a better leader, a better administrator. You take the gift, you run with it, and you know what? You don't even have to know what your gift is. Every time we do the, uh, the gift test to find out what gift we might have, I cringe just a little bit. Because, number one, we don't have a complete list of gifts, so your gift may not be on the list. Number two, you might read something there that you've grown into and think it's your gift when actually it's your growth. And, and so these tests scare me a little bit. I, I still use them every once in a while. But they scare me just a bit because we can get the wrong impression. They use their gifts and they use their growth. That's the first mark of a disciple. And that's who they were as disciplers. Number two, as disciplers, they attracted opposition. And I use the word attracted intentionally because they didn't go seeking opposition. The opposition came seeking them. By standing up for God's word, by declaring the truth of the gospel, by saying Jesus is God, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is the only way to heaven, Jesus was the only perfect person who ever lived on the earth, by proclaiming all these things, they attracted opposition. And I, I want to say this, A, in your notes, opposition to Christian living does not always follow logic or make sense. Sometimes the people who oppose you, you think, why are you opposing me? I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to help your kids. I'm trying to make our community better. Even if you disagree with what we're doing, you benefit from it. So why, why are you opposed to it? Well, you know, Paul faced this too. In verse 2, we're at, at letter B, but in verse 2, the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles. Remember who the Gentiles are? They're the people the Jews hate. They wouldn't talk to a Gentile. They wouldn't eat with the Gentile. They wouldn't go into a Gentile home. If they interacted or, or, or had contact with a Gentile, they would have to go cleanse themselves before they could go into the temple. They, they took things way farther than God ever intended, and, and they literally hated the Gentiles. If, if someone said, hey, the Gentiles are going to hell, they would have been, they deserve to. Not a problem. Now, all of a sudden, the Jews have figured out that they can stir up the Gentiles and use the Gentiles to get their, get their work done, to accomplish their goals. Let me relate this to a modern phenomenon. Okay, we have organizations that have formed. We have conferences that take place to espouse the belief of atheism. Okay, so atheism says there is no God, nothing matters. 
When you die, you die. When you're dead, it doesn't, you don't go on. There's no life after death, so just live your life. Well, if an atheist really believed that, why do they care that you believe in God? Do we have organizations forming against the, the, the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny and Santa Claus? Do we get on kids? You can't believe in Santa Claus. That will ruin your life. We, we don't have that. And if they put God and Jesus in the same category as Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy, why are they excited about it? They should just say, well, you know, if they want to live their life in that silly way, that's no problem. When they die, they're dead. When I die, I'm dead. I'll live my life my way. They can live their life their way. Whatever. That should be the response. That's the logical response. Why would I spend all my time arguing about something that doesn't matter? But they do. Why would the Jews, who think these people are false teachers and heretics, who think they're leading Gentiles, the issue here is that Gentiles are now following the Messiah. Why would the Jews, who don't care about either one of these groups, who think they're both wrong, who think they're going to hell, and an apostate Jew is the same as a Gentile in their mind, so the people that I really think deserve to go to hell, and, and I'll help them go if I can, why would I argue with them? What difference are they making in my life? They have lived as, as Jews for the entire existence of their nationality and as, of their identity, opposed to everyone around them. Now, all of a sudden, these group of people need to be taken care of. Um, opposition. There was a plot to murder them. Not just a plot, but a plan. They didn't just say, hey, we're going to kill you because we think you're jerks. They said, ah, we're, we actually we have a plan. We're going to kill them. The plan became known, and, and they didn't die. But verse 19, here's another curious thing. The old enemies followed them, stirring up old lies and accusations. I don't know if you caught this when we get to verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Okay, this is where... They had been run out of town earlier. This is 118 miles from Lystra. These Jews, who found out where Paul and Barnabas went after leaving town, they went to Lystra. These Jews took vacation, I guess, to go to Lystra for the sole purpose of showing up into town and getting in the way of their ministry and saying, you don't need to be a part of this. They weren't bothering them anymore. They weren't an issue anymore. But these Jews took it upon themselves to continue the attack. Christian opposition to Christian living doesn't always follow logic or make sense. Don't, don't try to figure out why someone's opposed to you sometimes. Just accept it and go from there. The second half of the sentence, as disciples, they attracted opposition. Second half, dealing with it wisely each and every time. Now, I said wisely, and I want you to know they didn't deal with it the same every time. In verse 3, when, when the, the Jewish people were stirring up trouble, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time speaking boldly. They, like, put their heels down. They, they, they settled in, and they, they spent considerable time. Well, we don't know exactly what that means, but that's probably more than a day or two. It's probably more than a month or two. They probably spent several months there, Boldly teaching. Okay, the Jews are here. They're telling you we're wrong. Let's go to Scripture. Let's look at what the let's look at what our Scriptures say. Let's see if we find Jesus there. That's what they did. But in verse six, okay, in verse six, when 
when the plot was forming and, and the mob was forming to kill them, they fled. So in verse 3, they, they kind of hunkered down to, to fight the good fight. In verse 6, they fled. Now, I assume that both of these were um, by the instruction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the big difference was the first time nobody wanted to kill them, so they kept on preaching. The second time was someone wanted to kill them, and they weren't done preaching, so they had to leave. I think the Holy Spirit gave them the indication of, you're not done. It's not time to be a martyr yet. You're not done. Head out of town. We'll bring you back later. And that's C in verse 21. They came back. They came back later to continue the work. Probably after the Jews had gone back home, after the, the hoopah had settled down, they came back. They, they, went, they backtracked in the exact opposite order of how they left. They came back, and they finished what they started. They finished strengthening the believers. So they responded wisely. One, they, they, they taught boldly. Another time they fled. And then later they came back to finish the work. So a discipler uses their spiritual gifts and their growths. A discipler knows and understands that they will attract opposition simply because they're doing the will of God. But they'll figure out how to respond to it wisely. After prayer, after seeking counsel. Number three... As disciplers, they maintain an attitude of humility. Now, this is in the middle of the list, but it's a big one on the list. If you lose humility, you're going to lose your position, you're going to lose your ministry, you're going to lose everything. In, in God's kingdom, humility is huge. In verse 14 and 15, we go back, and this is um, when they tried to say, hey, you guys are, are Zeus and... Hermes. Now the backstory there is that the people who worship these gods believed that the gods had visited them in the past and nobody recognized them and so they were judged. That was one of their legends. They were judged and everyone was wiped out. So they were on the lookout for the gods to come again. So when these two people, Barnabas and Saul, healed the man, some in the crowd said, oh, they're here. We can't miss them again. Let's sacrifice. And they were, they were ready to put them in the temple, give them the treasury, worship them, sacrifice the whole nine yards. And for some, that would have been very tempting. Hey, they're treating me like a god. They're going to give me all their money. They're going to feed me. I'll never have to work again. This is the good life. Let's go for it. Some would have said that. Paul and Barnabas, as soon as they figured out what was going on, ran into the crowd and said, no, 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 no. That's not who we are. We represent the real God, the creator of heaven and earth. We want to tell you about him so you can stop worshiping these false gods. So they did not accept the titles or worship being offered. Okay, Verse 27, when they got all the way back, they went to the church that sent them and they reported to the church. So they, they were accountable to the people who sent them off. That's humility. They, they came and said, we need to tell you what we did. We need to tell you how your money was spent. We need to tell you the success and the failures. So they reported. And verse 27, super important, it says, On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. All that God had done through them. And how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. They didn't go, oh, man, when we got there, it was so great. I gave this speech. It was such a good speech. Like, hundreds of people got saved. You wouldn't believe it. 
they carried me out like I was like a, a marathon champion. No, they said, you know what? God opened doors. We stepped through them. We were his tools. This is what God did. All that God had done through them. So they maintained this, this humility. They gave glory to God for their success. Number four, as disciplers, they endured hardship and setbacks. Remember the opposition that was attracted to them? Well, they also endured hardship and setbacks. Back to verse 5, uh, the initial threat, okay, the hardship, they, they received death threats and an actual plot, okay? In 11 through 12 and 18, their message was misinterpreted. That's a setback. When you're trying to preach the gospel and the response is, wow, you must be a god. We want to worship you. That would be a setback. And, and it was a setback that, that they really didn't recover from because verse 18, it says, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. These people so wanted the gods to visit that they weren't willing to listen. So they endured hardships and setback. In verse 19, Paul was actually uh, stoned by the crowd and left for dead. There's kind of a debate whether he really was dead or not. I mean, it's hard to... I mean, when you're pelted with rocks until you're dead, that's kind of dead. But they dragged him off and left him outside the city. Okay? But, the second half, as disciples, they endured hardship, but did not give up. In verse 6 and 21, they left Iconium, but returned. When they fled, they still didn't give up. They returned, and they probably thought the whole time they were gone, what are we going to do when we get back? How are we going to reach these people? How are we going to help the church? And then verse 20, after being stoned by the people, Paul got up and went back. We get like one verse on this. One verse. They stone him to death. They drag him out of the city. They plop him down out there for his body to rot on display for everybody. The people who've been saved in the town, they come out. They're probably crying and wailing and mourning. And now what are we going to do? He died too soon. How did God let this happen? All the natural emotions and responses, they're gathering around. Where are we going to take him? We need to honor him. Blah, blah, blah. And the dude stands up and walks. A little bit freaky. I don't know what they'd said when that happened, but he got up and he walked back into town and he said, all right, what do we do? And the answer was, we're going to leave town for a while. And they got up in the morning and they left town. <laughs> they never gave up. Number five, as disciples, they relied on God's power. Okay? At the first opposition, they spoke boldly. Okay? And the Lord confirmed their message with miracles. So God came through to confirm their message. In verse 10, remember the healing? Did you catch that he, that he, from a distance, like from across the street, he notices this guy, sees he has belief in his eyes, and says, hey, get up and walk. And the guy got up and walked. That's, that's faith. Everyone could see if it didn't work. But Paul knew it would work because he had been given this gift. He had faith in, in God's power. As disciples, they relied on God's power. In verse 20, Paul got up. That was obviously God's power. There's no way around that. And in verse 27, he had opened a door of faith. God's power opened the door for their preaching to be successful. 
and for their evangelism to be successful. So as a discipler, let me run through these one more time. As a discipler, we need to use our gifts and our growths. As disciplers, we should understand that we will attract opposition, and so a wise approach to that is required. As disciplers, we need to maintain an attitude of humility, giving honor and glory to God for everything he's doing. We will have to endure hardship and setbacks. Things won't always go as planned. And we have to be in it for the long haul, not give up. And as disciples, we better be relying on God's power because our power will fall short. We will get tired. We will get cranky. We'll want to give up. God will say, no, let's keep going. God will supply the power, the opportunity, the provision, and everything else. So that's Paul, mainly, in the macro discipleship. Now let's bring that down to us, micro disciplers. As micro disciplers, we follow the same pattern, but on a different stage. The only difference in the discipleship is the stage we stand on. Most of you are not going to stand on this stage doing what I'm doing. Some will. Most won't. So you do not need to work on your preaching. Okay? But the stage that God does give you is your assignment, is your ministry, and you do need to work on that. Maybe you're going to sign up for Awanas, you're going to work in Awanas, and you think, I'm just going to listen to a couple verses and cheer some kids on. You do that for a year or so, and then Pammy says, hey, why don't you lead, uh, why don't you lead large group? Why don't you give the message? Well, that's God growing you. You do that a few times, you develop that growth, and then somebody says, hey, I'm going to be out of town. I need someone to lead the small group. I'm going to be out of town. I need someone to teach Sunday school. And you say, you know what? I, I kind of did all right. I don't want it. I'm, I'm willing to give it a try. I've grown a lot. And you step into that role. And then you keep learning. You keep growing. Okay? We are all macro disciplers. Number one, we need to start serving with both our gifts and our growth. I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter what ministry you start in, your gift will be used. Okay? Every ministry, if we sit down and talk, can be every gift can be applied to. There's no exception. So, waiting for the perfect ministry that matches whatever you think your gift is, is probably a waste of time. Getting involved in the ministry that's before you, that has been shown to you, that you see, is probably where you need to get started. And we could even say, as, my, as micro-disciplers, or as, or as the normal people involved in discipleship, we need to start serving. We just need to start serving. We need to be serving somewhere, doing something. It needs to be regular. It needs to be the thing I watch for, the thing I normally do, the thing that I stand up for. We don't need volunteers because I'm already there. I'm going to start serving. I'm going to use my gift. I'm going to use my growth. Number two, as micro-disciplers... We must deal wisely with the opposition that we will inevitably attract. I got bad news for you here. Sometimes the opposition comes from within the group that you're serving. That's the worst. When opposition comes from inside the group you're serving, a complaint, a whiny attitude. You know, I could go through the list of things that are said and things that are done that, that kind of deflate energy and ministry 
Sometimes they come from outside. Slander, lies, um, wisecracks. All right? Opposition will come. It'll come in a variety of ways. Expect it. But deal with it wisely. Sometimes the wisest thing to do is just act like you never heard it. Don't respond to it at all. Is responding going to help? Is arguing going to help? Is getting angry going to help? Sometimes it's just best to ignore. Sometimes we need to put our foot down and spend time speaking boldly. Sometimes we need to leave the room or leave the group or leave town for a little while. We must deal wisely with the opposition. So we're going to need to start serving, deal wisely with the opposition that's going to come. Remain humble. You know, sometimes the opposition has a point. I hate that. Sometimes the opposition has a point. They may not come at, at you very nicely. They, they, may, they may miss the mark in how they're delivering it, but sometimes they are delivering truth. And sometimes we need to say, okay, I'm going to listen, and, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to do some evaluation, maybe even seek some wise counsel. But I'm going to be humble. I'm going to realize that there's more than one way, and my way not, might not be the best way. I'm going to realize that I'm a person in the church. I'm a part of the body. I'm a voice among many. I'm an ambassador, not the. So I'm going to be humble. I'm going to give God glory. I'm going to always make sure that God gets credit for any good thing that he does through me. And I'm going to say it's through me, not because of me. And in that, I'm going to give praise, glory, and credit to Christ. So i got to get started. i got to be wise when the opposition comes, and it will. I need to be humble through the whole process. And number four, we must face opposition and hardships with an attitude of perseverance. I'm not going to quit because somebody complained. I'm not going to quit because I had to make an adjustment. I'm not going to quit because someone else quit. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to seek God. Is this what God really wants? Did I misread the situation? No, this is what God wants. Then we're going to keep going. Okay, a discipler doesn't quit because there's opposition. If you quit because of opposition, don't bother starting because there will be opposition. Worse yet, there will be disappointment. The people that you're discipling will disappoint you. I promise you, and I guarantee it. They will disappoint you at some point in time. Every person that has discipled you has been disappointed by you sometime in the past. I guarantee it. You may not have seen it. You may have missed it, but they were disappointed because you didn't get the point. You didn't get the message. You didn't make the change. This will happen, but don't give up. God's timeline is different than your timeline. His way of working is different than your way of working. And his success rate is much higher than yours and mine. So let's give God time to be God. Let's not give up just because there's opposition, hardships, and disappointments. Number five, we must rely on God to do the things and control the things which we cannot we got to let God be God. we got to let Him do the God things and let Him control the God things. And we just do the things He's told us to do. A lot of times that means we wait. A lot of times it means we proceed with uncertainty. A lot of times it means we just have to trust Him for the outcome. It can be very difficult. So whether you're on the macro stage, if God's called you to be an evangelist, a missionary, a pastor... Well, you're on the micro stage in all ministries of the church. Here's the application. Not everyone is given a macro-sized assignment from God, 
but everyone is given a micro-sized opportunity to make a macro-sized difference. The person who discipled you, you should look at that and go, that made a big difference in my life. They taught good things. I learned a lot. That's a macro-sized investment, a macro-sized difference. Your micro-sized ministry can make a macro-sized difference in someone's life, and you may not even know it. Never discount any ministry in the church. Even if the ministry never requires a spoken word. Even the, the, the person who's in the background that you don't know about. Every ministry makes a difference. And God weaves the micro into the macro all the time. And number two, all ministry, all studies, and all service is at some level the work of a discipler. Please don't think that a disciple must always be speaking at some point in time. Many will lead by example. Many are on a team of disciples. There's one mouth, and there's two hands and two feet, and a bunch of other parts to help get the work done. Sometimes the mouth can't speak unless the hands are doing their work, and the feet are doing their work. Every ministry, every study that's done, every act of service is at some level the work of a discipler. That's why we can say everybody needs to be a disciple. A disciple takes in and a disciple gives out. If you're only taking in, you're a sponge and sponge left to themselves starts to stink and decay. Nobody wants an old sponge laying around very long, right? They're gross. And if all you do is take in, you're a sponge. If all you do is give out, then you're that resounding gong that drives everybody crazy. You're the dripping faucet that nobody wants to be around. If all you do is give out, you're repeating yourself all the time. You're just saying it over and over again. You're a, you're a you know, one-song band because you're not bringing anything new to then give out. A disciple takes in and gives out. I'm bringing in over here from somebody else and I'm giving out over here to somebody else. It's a three-person process. And so I need to be taking in and I need to be giving out. If I'm not doing both, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Whether it's on the macro stage or the micro stage, God is looking for disciples. And He wants us to do what disciples do. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask that he help us do that. Father, thank you that you gave us a system where we can remain fresh like, like running water because we're always receiving and we're always giving. That's, that's the system you set up. And I pray that we can embrace that, that we will be looking for others to invest in us. We'll be paying attention to those who are investing in us. We'll be learning from our mentors, learning from those who are wise, learning from those who have gone before us, and will also be giving to those who are coming behind us, that, that we will share our wisdom and, and the things we've learned so others don't have to learn the same lesson the same way we did. They can learn it from us. And that, that process produces freshness across the board. That freshness keeps the Holy Spirit alive and active in our hearts and produces joy and peace and the other fruits of the Spirit. And it allows us to do ministry. It's, it's the key factor in us being who you want us to be as a church. 
So, Father, thank you for the system, but please help us to be involved. Help us not to be a rock sitting in the middle or a leaf floating by, but help us to be part of the stream that flows. And I pray that you'll, you'll guide us in the process. And when we come to ministry, when you show us our platform, help us to get on and get moving and to use our gifts and to use our growths to serve you. And I just can't wait to see what you're going to do with us as we accomplish that goal. Thank you so much for those who have gotten on board and who are doing this, but there's always more. There's always a, a greater discipleship experience. Help us to find it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.